The state of Alabama executed a death row prisoner using nitrogen gas last night, the first state in the nation to use the untested method. It's Friday, January 26th. This is WBMAR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, financial troubles at Stewart Healthcare could result in nine Massachusetts hospitals closing. State health leaders are scrambling for solutions. That Stewart is considering closing facilities is a very frightening thought. Also, after years of forensic research, a Massachusetts family gets to bury the remains of a relative who was killed at Pearl Harbor in 1941, but not identified until recently. My aunt and my father never got the closure, but we're getting, this generation is getting it. It's getting the closure. Rain and clouds today in the low 40s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The International Court of Justice may issue a decision soon in the case alleging that Israel is committing genocide against Palestinians. Israel has fiercely rejected the charge. Today, the court may issue a temporary order demanding that Israel stop its offensive in Gaza while the rest of the court case proceeds. Gaza health officials say more than 26,000 Palestinians have been killed in Israeli attacks since the war began in October. Closing arguments are expected today in the New York defamation trial of former President Donald Trump. A jury is deciding how much he may have to pay writer E. Jean Carroll for calling her a liar. A prior jury found him liable for sexually assaulting Carroll. NPR's Jimena Bustillo reports Trump briefly took the stand yesterday. Asked by his lawyer if he ever instructed anyone to hurt Carroll, he said that he didn't and that he wanted to defend himself, his family, and presidency. Asked by Carroll's lawyer if he attended an earlier trial brought by Carroll, he said no. Carroll sued Trump for calling her a liar when she accused him of sexually assaulting her. This was her second lawsuit. The judge has already ruled that Trump is liable for defamation, but a jury must decide how much money he owes her. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, Washington. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen spoke to the Economic Club of Chicago yesterday. She painted a warmer image of the U.S. economy. In an interview, she says Americans' personal economic security is getting better. Consumers and households feel confident enough about their own personal financial situation and about the economic outlook to be spending in a way that's creating jobs, um, is creating growth. The Treasury Secretary says while there are risks of a recession, she thinks the U.S. economy will perform well this year. Alaska Airlines says the grounding of some Boeing planes will cost the airline $150 million. NPR's Joel Rose reports Alaska Airlines is pushing Boeing to strengthen its production quality after a door plug blew off in flight this month. Alaska Airlines said in a call with investors that the grounding of its Boeing 737 MAX 9 fleet would reduce the airline's profit by about $150 million and slow its growth plans for the year. Alaska CEO Ben Minicucci says the airline will continue to buy planes from Boeing, but it wants to see big improvements in quality control. We're going to hold Boeing's feet to the fire to make sure that we get good airplanes out of that factory. Regulators at the FAA have approved an inspection and maintenance process for the grounded Boeing 737 MAX 9 planes. Joel Rose, NPR News. Meanwhile, the FAA says the troubled Boeing models that have been fully inspected can start flying again. Alaska Airlines says it will start putting inspected Boeing jets back into service as soon as today. Media reports say that United Airlines will return some inspected Boeing jets to service on Sunday. 
You're listening to NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. The Massachusetts State Senate has introduced its version of a comprehensive gun control bill. It's called the SAFER Act. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, the legislation has the support of the Massachusetts Police Association. The proposed measures include banning devices that make semi-automatic weapons more lethal, a crackdown on so-called ghost guns, and a ban on marketing firearms to minors. It also exempts police from a proposal to ban carrying firearms in government buildings. Eric Gillis, president of the Massachusetts Chiefs of Police Association, says the Senate bill feels enforceable. What brought us on board were, were all the conversations, the ability to collaborate with Senate leadership about how a bill should be crafted, what would be effective, what wouldn't be effective. The bill will go to the Senate floor for debate next Thursday. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. Schools remain closed in Newton for a sixth day. Teachers are continuing their strike as they negotiate a new contract with the city. The teachers' union could also be in court today. A Middlesex Superior Court judge ordered the group back to work by Thursday or face a $200,000 fine. Teacher strikes are illegal in Massachusetts. North Atlantic right whales have returned to Cape Cod Bay. Researchers at the Center for Coastal Studies say they spotted the first four whales this week while they were out on their research vessel. They suspect there may be more. Christy Hudak is one of the center's research associates. She says the whales are here to feed. The right whales that we spotted were skin feeding and potentially subsurface feeding. So they're going for that zooplankton resource. She says boaters on Cape Cod Bay should keep an eye out to avoid any whales feeding on the surface. There are only about 350 North Atlantic right whales left in the world. Resident assistants at Emerson College have officially organized. The union says it won unanimous approval with 83 percent of eligible workers casting ballots. The RAs say they want to increase pay and improve working conditions and policies. Organizers say they're looking forward to the bargaining process with the school. RAs have also recently led union efforts at Boston University and Tufts. The creator of the iconic Pat Patriot logo has died. That's the logo used by the New England Patriots from 1960 through the 90s. It features a man in a Continental Army uniform with a football. It was created by Phil Bissell. He was a cartoonist with the Worcester Telegram Evening Gazette. Phil Bissell was 97 years old. The Patriots issued a statement saying they are deeply saddened by his passing. It's 7.06. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Lexus Broadway in Boston, presenting Girl from the North Country, playing in Boston this March. Written and directed by Connor McPherson, this new musical reimagines the songs of Bob Dylan, including Forever Young, Slow Train Coming, Like a Rolling Stone, and Make You Feel My Love. More at LexusBroadwayInBoston.com. The Celtics proved again why they're first in the NBA's Eastern Conference. The Seas beat the Heat in Miami 143-110. to They play the Los Angeles Clippers at home tomorrow. The Bruins skated to a win last night against the Ottawa Senators 3-2. to And in college hockey, it's the Battle of Com Ave as men's teams from BU and BC face off tonight and tomorrow. They're ranked first and second in the country.
You might see rain this morning until about lunchtime, then there's a chance of some drizzle. Highs will be in the low 40s. Tonight, more light rain is possible, otherwise cloudy and temperatures dip to the mid-30s. Tomorrow might be your day to get outside. It'll be cloudy but dry with a high in the upper 30s. Sunday, a high near 40 with a good chance of rain in the afternoon. It's 39 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. A high stakes will they or won't they is happening on Capitol Hill. Yeah, Senate negotiators say they're finalizing the details of a bipartisan agreement on immigration reform, but after months of negotiating, the potential deal could topple just before crossing the finish line as Republicans decide if they should defy former President Trump, who has demanded a hard-line Republican solution at the border. NPR's Eric McDaniel is here in the studio and has the latest. Hey, Eric. Good morning. Good morning. So where does the deal stand? These talks have been going on a long time, but now negotiators say they're very close to some sort of bipartisan agreement on a proposal that's that's notable, right, in and of itself. Yeah, I agree. So Republican Senator James Lankford of Oklahoma has been the chief Republican negotiator. Kirsten Cinema of Arizona, an independent former Democrat, has been involved. Democrat Chris Murphy of Connecticut is the point person for Democrats. And they have worked, by all accounts, pretty tirelessly on this since the fall, with preliminary talks happening as early as last spring. Murphy told me yesterday that the policies here, what's involved, is basically decided. Now they're dealing with dollar amounts and finalizing text. And part of the reason we're seeing a bipartisan framework here, bipartisan negotiations at all, is, well, the same reason we usually see them in Congress, which is a consensus that the problem's now too big to ignore. Mm. There are an all-time record number of people presenting themselves to border protection agents, often more than 10,000 a day, to put in asylum claims. And the system just isn't set up to deal with that as it stands. It's worth remembering that Republicans also told Biden that the only way to get a deal on Ukraine aid, something that's important to him, Israel aid, was to address the crisis at the U.S. border with Mexico. Biden agreed to that, which is how all of this got linked together. And there are also political reasons, though, to link these issues, right? Right. It's a pretty common strategy in Congress to link things together that people feel strongly about. That way, if you're a lawmaker, maybe you can overlook your hang-up about some details or policies that you care less about in order to get the whole package through. Right. Now, there is some uneasiness on the part of Republicans. Right. It was a little uh, kind of... Folks were on tenterhooks yesterday on the Hill, and I think we'll have to wait and see where things end up. On Wednesday, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, acknowledged in a closed-door meeting with his Republican colleagues that this could be a politically hard vote. Mm. He supports the deal, but GOP presidential frontrunner Donald Trump has said he opposes it. And in the House, where this was always going to be sort of a long shot just because of the dynamics in that chamber, there are immigration hardliners, much like Trump himself, for whom any deal with Democrats won't go far enough. You know, it's just not worthwhile. Mm. And with a narrow majority, they don't want to risk opposing Trump, which is a bit like kicking a hornet's nest for a Republican lawmaker. Say he backed a primary challenge or somehow otherwise opposed you. And 
they might not want to send it through. So we're in this weird position. Republicans want to see the text of the deal, weigh whether they're going to take a policy win, i.e. securing the border, and risk a potential Biden political win, credit for that deal, taking action on immigration reform. Mm -hmm. It's all in open question. Many Republicans really do earnestly want to see something like this get through, want to send money to Ukraine. But as ever, there are other political concerns involved. Okay, so what's next? When's this going to be a deal if it's going to be a deal? Well, we have to wait for the text. Uh, Kirsten Cinema told reporters yesterday in a rare gaggle um, that we could see this as early as next week. We want to see what the reforms are to see whether Republicans react positively to it once they've actually seen the policy and to see if there are defections for the, from the left. This thing needs 60 votes in all to pass the Senate. All right. NPR congressional reporter Eric McDaniel. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, my pleasure. The Biden administration is hitting pause on a proposed natural gas export terminal along Louisiana's Gulf Coast. The delay, which was officially announced this morning, could last beyond November past Election Day and could end over a dozen proposed projects. Now, the pause applies only to new exports, not existing ones. Exceptions for emergencies, too. Uh, Liquefied natural gas, or LNG, from the U.S. has been in high demand, particularly in Europe after Russia cut its gas exports to the continent in response to sanctions for its war in Ukraine. Republican Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell called reports of the delay bad news. The administration's war on affordable domestic energy has been bad news for American workers and consumers alike. Environmental groups and activists have long called for a hard stop of the new LNG export permits due to their greenhouse gas emissions, and President Biden is after their support in his re-election campaign. We're joined now by White House National Climate Advisor Ali Zaidi. Uh, why was this decision to expand and delay the review process made now? Look, um, this is an important step by the Biden-Harris administration, um, and it comes at an important time. Uh, we have uh, consistently um, met our target of standing with our allies and partners in Europe in 22 and 23 and projected to, in the coming years, exceed the targets we set uh, as part of our task force um, but at the same time, we stare down real climate uh, crisis, um, and those challenges are, are ones that we must reckon with. Um, they've been a core part of President Biden's uh, agenda here at home and around the world. Um, just a few uh, weeks ago, we were all at a U.N. conference where the globe decided uh, that we needed to transition away from fossil fuels. This temporary pause uh, gives us the time to do the economic and environmental analysis um, to, to, to measure twice, to make sure that we're understanding the implications uh, of the future potential build out uh, of this long life infrastructure. How much is this decision based on poll after poll that shows that President Biden gets bad approval ratings from people on climate change, on how he handles climate change? Does that have anything to do with this decision at all? This decision flows, I think, very clearly from the president's incredibly strong leadership on climate change, which has been front and center from day one. Uh, he walked into office, signed the United States back into the Paris Agreement, he reversed rollbacks that undermined our public health, our environment, and our energy security. He set forth a domestic climate agenda that's 
delivered the largest investment in climate change, not just here in the United States, but around the world. And as a result, has made really the U.S. the magnet for private investment. Hundred factories for clean energy and counting announced around the country. Um, over a million EVs sold last year. And really the world rallying around the president's call for greater ambition. So this is the next step uh, in a presidency where the president very clearly uh, from day one has been unafraid to follow the facts, um, dedicated to listening to the science and frontline communities uh, and had has had, I think, a very strong mm-hmm. commitment the uh, next taking climate mm-hmm. action. Is it the next step into eventually ending LNG exports? Look, the Department of Energy um, is launching this process to uh, study um, the economics, the environmental implications. We've had folks uh, from uh, U.S. manufacturing uh, sector just in the last few days um, call for this sort of review uh, to, to make sure we're thinking about the implications for costs and competitiveness here. Um, there have been scientists uh, over the last decade, five years, and year um, who've called for uh, increased scrutiny on the uh, implications from a greenhouse gas perspective. So this is responsive to that, and we will, uh, we will follow the facts. All right. That's White House National Climate Advisor Ali Zaidi. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. All right, we're also joined now this morning by Hallie Parker. She reports on the environment for WWNO's Coastal Desk in New Orleans. Uh, Hallie, so you just listened to our conversation um, uh, right there. What was your initial reaction to what you heard? Yeah, you know, I think we heard um, the climate advisor talk a lot about what Biden has done about climate change so far. And I think that that really shows the Biden administration knows it needs to emphasize that it's serious about addressing climate change. Um, You know, he's talked about how Biden wants to be the climate president. And this decision to pause new natural gas export plants is a big way to do that. If if this is such a priority for the Biden administration, Hallie, why do you think people don't seem to be understanding that or disapprove of the way he handles the climate. Yeah, you know, last year, Biden came under a lot of criticism from climate activists because he approved the giant Willow oil project in Alaska. And so I think this move signals to voters who care about Biden's climate promises that they have actually gotten his attention and that he's listening. So this is a a real move, not a symbolic move, but actual one that will involve real environmental benefits. Right. Yeah. This decision will actually pump the brakes on these enormous facilities that promise to emit millions of tons of planet warming emissions each year. And, you know, each of these 17 proposed plants that are being delayed would operate on lengthy contracts and prolong the use of fossil fuels. And that's a decision that a lot of climate and energy experts say shouldn't be taken lightly at a time when countries, including the U.S., are trying to lower emissions to limit climate change. You're in New Orleans. Uh, from a business perspective, how likely is this decision going to be handled uh, well or poorly there? Yeah, from the business side, there is going to be a lot of resistance to this administration's decision. Um, these plants have been seen; <clears throat> these plants have been seen as a huge economic boon for parts of Louisiana. But there's going to be other reactions too. You know, we've been ground zero for this build out that the gas industry is proposing us in Texas, and the opposition to adding more has been growing. 
Um, you know, I was just at a protest last week and a lot of these plans are proposed in low income communities that are already heavily industrialized and the residents I've spoken to are vulnerable to climate change and they haven't felt protected. So those folks will be thrilled. All right. Hallie Parker reports on the environment for WWNO's Coastal Desk in New Orleans. Hallie, thanks a lot. Thanks so much for having me. This is NPR News. Good morning. You've made it to the end of the week with 90.9 WBUR. Stay with us today as we await a preliminary ruling from the International Court of Justice in The Hague on South Africa's charges of genocide by Israel in Gaza. And in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, a new video making the rounds online casts Donald Trump as a messiah-like figure. We'll look at how it's playing with his base. It's 720. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. I'm Scott Tong. In Oakland, the baseball A's are stealing away from home, moving to Vegas to join the former Oakland Raiders. Plus, the NBA Warriors have already left for fancy San Francisco. What you have are emblems of culture that were really very important here, being stolen away from these fans. That's Here and Now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Rain likely through early afternoon today, then drizzle. We'll have highs in the low 40s. Tonight it falls to the mid-30s and there's a chance of more drizzle. Tomorrow may start with some light rain, then it'll be mostly cloudy with a high near 40. Sunday, cloudy with a high back near 40. There's a good chance of rain starting in the afternoon. It might turn to snow Sunday night. It's 39 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate. At Progressive.com, not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Michelle Martin. Kwame Alexander is an award-winning poet, a best-selling author of 38 books, most recently of Why Fathers Cry at Night. And now he has curated a new collection of poems by other contemporary poets, his peers. It is called This is the Honey, and I'm just going to 
Let him tell you about it. Kwame Alexander, welcome back. Thanks for joining us. So good to be here to be with you, Michelle. You describe this book in various ways, and they're all true. I mean, it's you called it the in-between. You called it a gathering space for Black poets to honor and celebrate. And you called it an unbridled selfie. <laughs> so <laughs> say more about what you had in mind when you put this together. You know, when I was 12... We were living in Virginia, and I my job was to clean out the garage every weekend. And my garage was a library. There were about 100 crates filled with books. And I discovered this one book called Black Spirits, edited by Woody King, A Festival of Black Poets in America. I read this book and couldn't put it down. There was this one particular poem in there. I got up this morning feeling good and black, thinking black thoughts, did black things like played all my black records and minded my own black business, put on my best black clothes, walked out my black dough and Lord have mercy, white snow. (laughs) (laughs) I was so fascinated. Can I just, just for those who can't see us, you are reciting, you are not reading, you are reciting from memory. That's how much the poem and that book of poems meant to me. And it inspired my imagination. It elevated my imagination, the power of language. I've always wanted to do an anthology of poets who were living, contemporary poets. And I thought this was the right time. You say this at the very beginning in the introduction, where you say, so much of the time, black writers are expected to write about the woe. We are called to explore, explain, and expose those things and people and circumstances that make every attempt to arrest our community's development. And you said, a literature that fights back, a poetry that revives, that resists. But you wanted to do something different. Yeah. Whether you're looking at the poets from the Harlem Renaissance, Langston Hughes and County Cullen, What is Africa to Me, Copper Sun and Scarlet Sea, or or you're looking at the black arts movement poets, Nikki Giovanni, Hakeem Adabuti, Sonia Sanchez. These were poets who had to write for their right to be black, to be free, to be a human being. Their testimonies were loud cries. They were screams that black is beautiful, that we matter. And that is so valuable. When I look at my 15-year-old kid, I want her to know that's valuable. And I also want her to know to smile. I want her to, to find a joy. And I feel like there are so many times that black writers feel like we are responsible for addressing racism, that we are responsible for addressing social injustice. And while that's true, can we also address love? Can we also address Sunday dinner? Can we also address our families and friendships and hopes and joys? I do want to point out that there are a lot of laughs in this anthology, especially if you just go by the title. Some of the titles are deeply hilarious. (laughs) For example, Ode to the Plastic on Your Grandmother's Couch. (laughs) And there's another one. Before I fire her, the therapist asks, what is it like to be a black woman here? And when I can dance down a soul trade line in public and still be Muslim. So it gives you the flavor right. of some of the poems that are extremely funny as well as very moving. Why don't we start with the, the poem that gave you the title for the collection, This is the Honey. By Mahogany Brown, who is the poet in residence at Lincoln Center. And these first two stanzas, I think, really tell you what the mood that this book is going to hopefully bring to your space. There is no room on this planet for anything less than a miracle. We gather here today to revel in the rebellion of a silent tongue. Every day we lean forward into the light of our brightest designs and cherish the sun. 
praise our hands and throats, each incantation a jubilee of a people dreaming wildly, despite the dirt beneath our feet or the wind pushing against our greatest efforts. Soil creates things. Art births change. This is the honey. And doesn't it taste like a promise? Where your heart is an accordion and our laughter is the soundtrack. Friend, dance to this good song. Look how it holds our names. Mm, that is delicious. Right? That is delicious. And it's sweet. It is. <laughs> Why was this the poem that gave the title to you? There's an old Negro spiritual. And, you know, Langston Hughes talked about this idea of laughing to keep from crying. And I think there's a history and a, and a tradition of Americans in general, but black Americans in particular, finding some levity in the midst of troubled times. And I like to be funny. And I wanted to try to find as many pieces that talked about really heavy things, but did it in a way that made it digestible and accessible and ultimately hopeful for us, because that's what I want readers to leave this book with, some hope, um, some love, and some grace. Our editor, Rena Advani, wanted to pick one because she gets to do that. And <laughs> she liked A Twice-Named Family by Tracy Dant. And would you mind reading that for us? I come from a family that twice names its own. One name for the world, one name for home. Liddy, Jolie, Dor, Bud, Bobby, B, Puddin', Cluster, Lindy, Money, Duddy, Vess. Yes, we are a two-named family because somebody way back knew you needed a name to cook chitlins in, a name to put your feet up in, a name that couldn't be fired, a name that couldn't be denied alone, a name that couldn't be asked to go through anyone's back door. Somebody way back knew we needed names to be loved in. Hmm. How about that? The power of being able to tell a complete story in 30 lines or less, to be able to identify a socio-cultural problem, something that has been tragic and harmful for black people in America, and to be able to do it in such a concise, rhythmic, and a beautiful way. It's, the poetry is that, it's that thing that reaches your heart. I always say, Michelle, if you want people to change the way they act, change the way they think. Mm. You want to change the way they think, change the way they feel. Mm. What better way to reach them than through the lines of a poem? Hmm. That is Kwame Alexander speaking to us about This is the Honey, an anthology of contemporary black poets. It is out next week. Kwame Alexander, thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you, Michelle. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. NPR's Planet Money team explores how the Chinese company BYD went from manufacturing batteries to dominating the electric vehicle market. It's 7.30. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The U.N.'s top court says it will not throw out the case accusing Israel of genocide in the war with Hamas. The International Court of Justice in The Hague is issuing an interim ruling at this hour in a lawsuit brought by South Africa. Israel has rejected the allegation. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has vowed to press on with the fighting. The state of Alabama has executed a death row inmate with nitrogen gas. It's the first time that method has been used in the U.S. Lawyers for Kenneth Eugene Smith argued Smith was made a test subject for what they called an experimental execution method. 
They maintained he was subjected to cruel and unusual punishment. Smith was pronounced dead after breathing the gas through a face mask, causing oxygen deprivation. John Hamm is the state's corrections commissioner. He struggled against his restraints a little bit, but there's some involuntary movement and some agonal breathing, so uh, that was all expected. Smith was convicted of killing a woman in 1988 in a murder-for-hire plot. The mayor of New London, Connecticut, says the city was extremely fortunate to avoid deaths or injuries yesterday when the roof and steeple of a historic church gave way. The collapse left a gaping hole in the top of the first congregational church in the city's downtown. The cause is being investigated. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Welcome centers set up to help new immigrants arriving in Massachusetts are sending between 100 and 200 people to sleep at Logan Airport each night. Advocates say the airport has become a de facto family shelter. And WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel reports their concern for the family's well-being. At night, on the far side of a baggage claim, people line the walls. Some huddle under thin blankets, others lean against windows. DaCosta has been there with his wife and three children for 10 nights. Do you sleep okay? No, 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 it's so cold. It's cold, I'm cold too, and we have no, no bed. We're not using his full name because of the family's immigration status. The state-run family shelter system is full, as are the overflow shelters. The shelter waitlist has more than 600 families on it. A spokesperson for the state says officials are working to open more overflow sites. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. Environmental advocates are urging Governor Healy to take a stand against the proposed expansion of a natural gas pipeline through Massachusetts and several other northeast states. The expansion is dubbed Project Maple. It would significantly increase the amount of natural gas flowing into the region. WBUR's Miriam Wasser reports the proposed expansion comes as many states are trying to move away from fossil fuels. The company behind Project Maple says piping more gas into the Northeast will reduce costs and increase energy reliability. But environmentalists say it will contribute to climate change and harm communities who live near the pipeline. Andrea Honoré lives in Weymouth and was part of the group that delivered the letter to Governor Healy. Moore Healy had a record as AG of standing up against gas and oil companies. Now as governor, we would like to know how she plans on addressing Project Maple. A spokeswoman for the Executive Office of Energy and Environmental Affairs stopped short of denouncing the project, but questioned its viability and said the administration is committed to moving away from fossil fuels. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium, guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch and center stage. TheMusicEmporium.com. It's a big weekend for men's college hockey as Boston University and Boston College play each other twice in what's known as the Battle of Calm Ave. The two top-ranked teams play tonight at BC and tomorrow night at BU. And it was wins last night for both the Bruins and the Celtics. Both teams have today off. Highs in the low 40s today with a good chance of showers through about early afternoon. Then we may see some drizzle. Mid-30s tonight with more drizzle possible. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy and a bit cooler with a high near 40. About the same on Sunday, cloudy with a high near 40. Rain is likely Sunday afternoon and it may become snow Sunday night and into Monday. It's 39 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. 
Support for NPR comes from the station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. From Deloitte, advancing the future takes more than a business angle or a technology angle. It takes both. Learn more at deloitte.com US slash engineering advantage. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadel in Washington, D.C. And I'm Martinez in Los Angeles, California. A video making the rounds online depicts Donald Trump as a messiah-like figure. God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a caretaker, so God gave us Trump. The video comes from the Dilly Meme Team, a group of video creators that support Trump for president. It's called God Made Trump, and it's played at some Trump campaign events. So we wanted to dig into how its message is playing with an important group of Trump supporters, white evangelicals. Robert Jones is the president and founder of the Public Religion Research Institute. He spoke with our colleague Steve Inskeep. I think it's in line with really a long set of appeals to kind of square the circle of why white evangelical Protestants um, have been one of the most stalwart supporters of a candidate and president such as Donald Trump. We see this presentation of Trump as a kind of Messiah figure, but it's notable that it's it's not really Jesus that we're getting the comparison to, but you know, the one you hear in evangelical circles more often is a comparison to like the Persian King Cyrus from the book of Isaiah in the Hebrew Bible. And that's important because there Cyrus is presented as an ungodly king who nonetheless frees a group of Jews who are held captive in Babylon. So by comparison, Trump here is the powerful, strong, authoritarian liberator, someone who by definition and maybe even by necessity is is even above the law and who alone is capable of liberating conservative white Christians from their oppressors. God's unholy tool. You know, a couple of years ago, we had on the program Christian Cobus Dumay, who wrote a book called Jesus and John Wayne about the evangelical movement. She's from an evangelical background, and she describes evangelicals who feel that they're fundamentally in an evil world, in a bad world. And part of the logic here might be that you need a bad person to protect you. And so if Trump is corrupt, if he's evil, if he's cruel, if he's even indicted, as he's since been, that's good, not bad to some people. I think that's the most accurate characterization. It's in fact what the data you know, shows, again, that it, it really isn't about character. It's, uh, you know, and this is remarkable, right, from a group that previously talked about itself as so-called values voters. But with Trump at the top of the ticket, they've really wholesale abandoned this idea of uh, a candidate's character. In fact, we see this in public opinion polling. Um, in 2011, we asked a question at PRRI about whether a political candidate could commit an immoral act in their personal life and still behave ethically and fulfill their duties in their public life. Uh, in 2011, only three in 10 white evangelicals thought this was possible. Uh, once Trump gets to the top of the ticket in 2016, we asked this question again, and the number of white evangelicals who said they thought that a candidate could commit an immoral act in their personal life and still perform their duties in their public life jumped from 30% to 72%, largely in response to Trump. Is this just an act of partisan rationalization? People are going to be for Republicans no matter what, and they come up with this rationalization after the fact once Trump becomes the nominee. You know, I do think a large part of his partisanship, uh, to be sure, um, it's worth remembering that white evangelicals used to be stalwart Democrats, uh, but really in reaction to the civil rights movement, 
uh, began moving into the Republican Party and finally solidified under Reagan. But I think with Trump, there's something much stronger than that. It's not just partisanship. It really does hinge on this idea of Trump as the protector of this worldview. We have majorities of white evangelical Protestants telling us that they believe that God intended America to be a promised land for European Christians. Even when we put it that starkly on a public opinion survey, we have majorities of evangelicals affirming that view. If you were an opponent of Trump, if you were Nikki Haley, who's still in the race, or if you were Joe Biden, what, if anything, would you try to do to peel away even a small slice of that evangelical support? Because a small slice could make a difference. It could make a difference, and particularly in some Midwestern states, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, um, uh, Georgia, North Carolina. These are places with significant numbers of of white evangelical uh, voters. It's really tough, I have to say. They've been so consistently, and in fact, their support for Trump went up slightly between 2016 and 2020. If anything, I think there is the appeal to, you know, just a different vision of the country. Um, So I I think that's where the Biden campaign and really Haley has to engage Trump. I think the biggest mistake the Democratic Party could make here is trying to run a campaign that's all about economic well-being that ignores these deeper cultural claims about who we are as a country and who this country is for and what our future is going to look like together. Robert Jones of the Public Religion Research Institute and author of the new book, The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy. Thanks so much. Thank you. Football fans are eagerly awaiting Sunday's conference championship games to find out which teams will go to the Super Bowl. Okay, I can't even pretend I know what I'm talking about. I don't know what the conference championship games are, and I don't know why the players wear those tight pants. A, you're going to have to just take it from here. Layla, I'm glad you asked. The reason why the pants are so tight is because when they get tackled, they don't want the pants to come off. That's why they have to be that tight. Oh. Pretty simple, yeah. There are explanations. Okay, so for those of you like me who don't follow the NFL, it might be stressful with coworkers or friends asking for your hot takes about the big games. We're here to help you fake it until you make it. Who is asking you for your hot football takes? Did I not just explain my expertise? Eh? Uh, I, I no mean, yes. clearly, I'm kidding. We have the perfect person that is not me to help. Hi, I'm Melissa Jacobs. I'm an NFL contributor for The Guardian, and my social media is at The Football Girl. All right. In the AFC Championship game Sunday night, the Baltimore Ravens host the Kansas City Chiefs. What should you know about the Ravens? The main name you need to know is Lamar Jackson. He's the do-it-all quarterback with his arm. He's getting it done on the ground, and he is the unequivocal NFL MVP this season. Okay, and what about the Chiefs? The most famous name from the Kansas City Chiefs used to be their quarterback, Patrick Mahomes. But now it's Taylor Swift, (laughs) thanks to her very well-publicized relationship with Travis Kelsey. The tight end of the Kansas City Chiefs is Mahomes' number one target. I mean, he is just a bruiser out there. He's a total game changer. He's really, really hard to cover. And then in the NFC, the Detroit Lions are in San Francisco to take on the 49ers. This is a team, the San Francisco 49ers, perennially in the playoffs, but they've lost the NFC championship the last two years, and they lost the Super Bowl two years before that. So they have a lot still to prove despite their success, and it will be a disappointing season if the 49ers don't win the Super Bowl. And what about their opponents from the Motor City? Well, the Detroit Lions have morphed into America's team. They just won their first 
playoff game in 32 years. And the Lions are one of only four teams that have never played in a Super Bowl. They're a team on the rise and they've gotten so many monkeys off their back already and there might be more to come. All right, there you have it. Your guide to this weekend's NFL playoff games. Play ball. Oh, wait, that's baseball. Whatever. <laughs> close. You're close. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, the U.N.'s International Court of Justice in The Hague has delivered a preliminary decision after South Africa brought charges of genocide against Israel for its actions in Gaza. Low 40s and showers today through about early afternoon. Then we might see some drizzle. Mid-30s and cloudy tonight with a chance of more drizzle. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy and near 40. Sunday, cloudy and near 40 again. Rain is likely in the afternoon. It might become snow Sunday night and last through Monday morning. It's 39 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston's historic Back Bay, near universities, high-tech, and the city's cultural life. ElliottHotel.com and Vertex, working for people living with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in Boston, Cambridge, and Providence at VRTX.com. Danish energy company Orsted plans to buy a 50% stake in an offshore wind farm from Boston-based Eversource. The deal depends on whether Sunrise Wind gets a contract with New York for offshore energy. Neither side is releasing the terms of the deal. Eversource is still looking for groups to buy out its stakes in two other offshore wind companies. Cambridge-based Sage Therapeutics plans to downsize its headquarters. The company is moving to a smaller Cambridge office after laying off about 40 percent of its workforce last year. Nearly 300 people were affected. The Boston Business Journal reports Sage plans to move into its new office in September. Nikon Instruments is opening a new bioimaging lab in Lexington. The company plans to use the location for research and to support the creation of new medicines. Nikon opened its first Massachusetts bioimaging lab in Cambridge in 2019. It's 7.45. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquil.com. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldin. Last year, a Chinese company called BYD overtook Tesla as the top producer of electric vehicles in the world. Our colleagues over at The Integrator from Planet Money, Darian Woods and Patty Hirsch, explain what BYD's rise tells us about the Chinese car industry. In Australia last year, Aaron McDonald was looking to go electric. He wanted a Tesla, but... They were a little past his family's budget. There's not a huge amount of electric cars in our price range and, and for our, our needs available here in Perth. Aaron road tested a cheaper, unfamiliar Chinese car brand, BYD. I'd never heard of this brand. I was concerned about their ability to service or make a good quality car. The car he test drove was the Atto 3. He read about the company's track record and that had partnered to make a wide network of servicing dealers across Australia. 
Yeah, so Aaron and his wife thought the EV was reliable enough and at a good price point. So they bought it. Elliot Richards is the China correspondent for the Fully Charged Show, which is a YouTube channel all about electric vehicles. And Elliot says you can think of BYD as the Toyota of EVs. So they're offering, you know, those smaller EVs at reasonable price points, and they're, they're really filling in that gap. And to understand how BYD can offer these reliable, simple EVs at competitive prices, it helps to know a little about its founder, Wang Chuanfu. In the mid-1990s, Wang Chuanfu was a chemistry researcher, and he started BYD as a battery company. Wang Chuanfu is known for having this intense work ethic and an acute attention to detail. And clearly, being one of the world's top battery makers wasn't enough of a challenge for him. Because in 2003, he decided to acquire a state-owned car company. And after experimenting with conventional engines, Wang Chuanfu and his company were determined to make a world-beating electric vehicle. They thought, well, we're not masters at making petrol engines. The Germans, the Japanese do that much better than us. They've been doing it for a hundred years, we're never really going to catch them up. So they started developing their own technology in batteries and electric motors. BYD not only makes its own lithium car batteries, but it owns its own lithium mines. And this helps the company make cheaper, reliable batteries. BYD's still learning a lot. They're learning so quickly on, on how to adapt their cars for a Western audience or an overseas market. Because of what BYD offers, which is a car that gets you from A to B at a reasonable price below Tesla, they are taking off from Perth to Paris. One location they're not selling their cars, though, the United States. Craig Trudell is the global automotives editor for Bloomberg News. The reason Americans don't see BYDs on the roads in the U.S. is because Washington is really concerned about China basically repeating what we've seen over decades with Japan entering the market and Korea after that. BYD electric buses are sold in the US, but the cars are a whole other story. Because in 2018, Donald Trump announced a 25% tax on Chinese cars. So what about some kind of workaround to bring BYD cars to the US? Like, I don't know, setting up a factory in Mexico or doing a joint venture with an American company? Craig is skeptical that will be happening anytime soon. Darian Woods. Patty Hirsch, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. This is NPR News. It's a Friday on WBUR. Coming up at 8.20 here on Morning Edition, registered Republicans in Nevada have two opportunities coming up next month to vote for a GOP presidential nominee. We'll explain why. It's 7.50. WBUR supporters include The Huntington, presenting Stand Up If You're Here Tonight, a man-seeking audience. A one-man, one-audience show, 264 Huntington Ave, now through March 3rd. My name is Robin Inman. Think about what your values are and what's important to you in the big picture and therefore what you hope you can leave as a legacy. Learn more about planned giving at WBUR.org legacy. Chantal Panozzo went in for a routine colonoscopy and she got a surprise bill for it. This is what happens when something that should have been free isn't. More on All Things Considered from NPR News. From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. 
Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. The U.N.'s International Court of Justice in The Hague has decided not to throw out a genocide case against Israel for its military offensive in Gaza. Senate leaders say they're committed to passing a bipartisan deal on the border as an agreement remains in limbo. And Alabama has become the first state to execute a death row inmate using nitrogen gas. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. Rain is expected through early afternoon today, then drizzle is possible. It'll be in the low 40s, mid-30s tonight and cloudy, mostly cloudy tomorrow and near 40, near 40 again on Sunday and cloudy with a good chance of rain in the afternoon. It might turn to snow Sunday night and that may last through Monday morning. It's 39 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Healthcare leaders are increasingly concerned about the possible closures of Stewart Healthcare's nine hospitals in Massachusetts. State officials say they're working to ensure that jobs and access to health care aren't disrupted by Stewart's financial difficulties. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports. The state has been scrambling to figure out what to do since Stewart said its financial losses jeopardize operations in Massachusetts. Massachusetts Medical Society President Dr. Barbara Spivak says hospitals are already strained. The thought that Stewart is in financial crisis and is considering closing facilities is a very frightening thought that no matter where they would consider closing something, It will create an undue burden. Spivak is hopeful the state will take steps to preserve Stewart Hospitals, which serve tens of thousands of patients and employ about 14,000 people in eastern Massachusetts. Tim Foley is with the union, representing about 5,000 Stewart workers. We're working with our members, the governor and the secretary, and everyone in between to make sure that there's a plan in place to ensure that care can continue in these important communities, and that we maintain these critical health care jobs. Legislative leaders and the governor's office say they're working on several options, awaiting to see what steps Stewart takes. Some of those involved in the talks say Stewart has indicated it must come up with a plan to satisfy its creditors by next week. They say options include dividing Stewart hospitals among existing health care systems or some type of temporary state takeover. State Senator Julian Sear, who leads the legislature's public health committee, says lawmakers are determining what action they might take. We're watching the situation closely, and I think there's really sort of two pieces here, right? One relates to the Pacific hospital system, and then the second piece is going forward, how do we prevent this from happening again? Stewart has shown signs of distress for years. Earlier this month, its landlord said Stewart owes $50 million in back rent. State officials say Stewart has long concealed its finances. In 2016, the state sued Stewart for not providing financial data as other hospitals do. Stewart argued that as a for-profit, it didn't have to. That litigation still pending. Ray Campbell was involved in that legal fight as head of the Center for Health Information Analysis, which collects state hospital data. Campbell, now an instructor at Harvard School of Public Health, says there are lessons to be learned from Stewart's difficulties. Private equity and for-profit investments in healthcare need to be scrutinized very carefully because the kind of the objectives and the dynamics aren't necessarily the same. 
Regardless of what happens, Campbell and many others say the situation with Stewart should prompt improvements to state health care oversight and regulation. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. A Holyoke, Massachusetts native killed during the attack on Pearl Harbor is getting a full military burial this weekend, more than 80 years after his death. It's the culmination of years of forensic research to identify victims of U.S. wars. Karen Brown reports. Last November, Cheryl Quinn answered the phone in her kitchen. It was a Navy representative calling about her uncle, Merle Hillman, who died in the attack on Pearl Harbor. The last time she heard from the Navy was 2011. I had gotten a letter from the Navy and they asked if I would send a DNA sample. And I did, but after 12 years, I forgot about it. So when this call came, I was really, really in shock. Her son Brendan was in his room watching TV. She walks in and she's crying. I'm like, oh God, who passed away now? And she just said, they found Uncle Merle. He's coming home. Merle Hillman was a 25-year-old pharmacist's assistant on the USS California when the Japanese attacked in 1941, killing Hillman and more than 100 of his shipmates. His remains had been buried in a national cemetery in Hawaii, among other unknown service members. Quinn, who is 73, never met her uncle Merle. Her late father, Merle's older brother, almost never mentioned him, nor did Merle's younger sister. I think it was painful for them because they were all very close in age. After that call, a Navy representative came to Quinn's Holyoke home, which had once been Merle Hillman's home, with a binder of information. This is about, you know, where he was, um, the cemeteries, and there was some personal information. The binder includes a photo of the bone fragments they found. This is his skull, and it shows the fracture, and then there's, these are burn marks. That helped the military piece together how he died that day. The USS California was hit by um, two torpedoes and then one bomb. Quinn says they believe Hillman was below deck, caring for those injured by the torpedoes when the bomb hit. You know, that probably was when he died. The return of Hillman's remains is part of a broader effort that began in 2015. A forensic team began to exhume and identify bodies from several ships at Pearl Harbor. Defense Department spokesperson Sean Everett says they now use DNA analysis and other genealogical research. That whole process from when we can recover a service member to when the the science part of it is done can take years. Everett says about 80,000 service members remain missing from the Vietnam War, Korea, and World War II, with the latter accounting for the vast majority. He says the effort to identify remains is not only about the promises made decades ago. But it's also a promise to those in the military or joining the military today that if the line of duty calls on them to make the ultimate sacrifice, they won't be left behind. Even if it's years later, they won't be forgotten. That means a lot to Quinn's son, Brendan, an Iraq war vet who joined the Army at 21, in large part because he's always considered his great-uncle Merle a military hero. Crazy enough, I joined two weeks before 9-11, so I didn't even know I was going to go in during a time of war, just like my uncle. Once Brendan and Cheryl learned how Merle died, they wanted to learn what they could about his life. They went to the library and found a 1933 yearbook entry from Holyoke High School. They learned his nickname was Mitch, he liked brushing his teeth, and would often run around the school hallways. 
But one line really struck them. It says, Merle, it seems we'll never grow up. It seems like he didn't. Quinn says her uncle's homecoming is emotional, but also bittersweet, because everyone who knew him is already gone. My aunt and my father never got the closure, but we're getting, this generation is getting it. It's getting the closure. And on Saturday at St. Jerome Cemetery in Holyoke, near the same plot as his brother and sister, Merle Hillman will be buried with full military honors. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Karen Brown. Rain is likely through mid-afternoon today. It'll be in the low 40s. Temperatures fall to the mid-30s tonight and skies will be overcast. Tomorrow, some light rain is possible in the morning. Then it'll be mostly cloudy and near 40. It's 39 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.N.'s top court has decided not to throw out a genocide case against Israel for its military offensive in Gaza. It's Friday, January 26th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, analysts say Hamas's actions are helping justify Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's hardline positions. Hamas came useful to Netanyahu to ensure that a cohesive Palestinian leadership did not emerge and therefore there couldn't be a Palestinian state. Also this hour, with Massachusetts's family shelters full, the state's welcome centers are sending as many as 200 people a night to sleep at Logan Airport. Come sleep in airports and... Every day. Every day. Now it's day 10. Do you sleep okay? No, no, no. It's so cold. Rain and clouds today in the low 40s. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The UN's highest court, the International Court of Justice, is issuing its first major decision in a case alleging that Israel is committing genocide against Palestinians in Gaza. This stems from the war between Israel and Hamas. The court won't rule on the genocide issue immediately, but in the interim, ICJ President Joan Donahue says the court is ruling Israel must take immediate measures to protect Palestinians' lives. Israel must take measures within its power to prevent and punish the direct and public incitement to commit genocide in relation to the members of the Palestinian group in the Gaza Strip. The court says Israel must also reply within one month about steps that it is taking to protect Palestinian civilians. Israel has rejected the allegation of genocide, saying it is taking all measures to protect civilians. The war started last October when Hamas militants attacked Israel, killing at least 1,200 people, mainly civilians. A bipartisan border deal being worked out among senators could be in jeopardy. The issue is vital because Republican lawmakers say they won't pass aid for Israel or Ukraine without addressing U.S. border security first. NPR's Eric McDaniel reports. Democratic Majority Leader Chuck Schumer wants a deal. Republican Minority Leader Mitch McConnell wants one, too. But GOP presidential frontrunner Donald Trump, he doesn't. And a lot of members are loath to cross him. 
That means that after months of negotiations dragged on into a presidential year, the political shot clock may have expired. But the negotiators, they say they're pressing ahead, dotting I's and crossing T's before formally unveiling the legislation as soon as next week. It's expected to majorly overhaul how migrants are processed at the U.S. southern border and send military aid to Ukraine and Israel. Once it's out, Republicans will weigh a potential policy win against upsetting Donald Trump. Eric McDaniel, NPR News, Washington. Alabama has executed convicted murderer Kenneth Smith by nitrogen gas. Troy Public Radio's Kyle Gassett reports this is the first U.S. execution to use this method. Kenneth Smith and an accomplice were convicted and sentenced to death for the 1988 murder-for-hire of Elizabeth Senate. Alabama attempted but failed to execute Smith by lethal injection in 2022. State officials decided they would place a mask over Smith's face and pump in nitrogen gas, causing him to die from deprivation of oxygen. Once Alabama created protocols for this new method last year, Smith and his lawyers objected, calling it experimental and inhumane. In a statement following the execution, Alabama Governor Kay Ivey said that Smith had answered for his horrendous crimes and got what he asked for. For NPR News, I'm Kyle Gassett in Montgomery, Alabama. On Wall Street and pre-market trading, stock futures are lower. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Repairs on the Green Line extension may finally be completed soon. The MBTA says it plans to finish track repairs this weekend between Leechmere, Union Square, and Medford Tufts. The update comes after months of slowdowns and night closures so crews could fix the poorly built tracks. WBUR's Zaninjor Mwameka reports. The T has been widening tracks on the Green Line extension because they were too narrow to safely support trains going at full speed. MBTA General Manager Phil Eng says crews are now doing final walkthroughs and spot repairs. This weekend, with the last of the spot repairs, we fully anticipate that the regaging work that needs to be done on Green Line extension will be complete. Eng says the T has already widened roughly eight miles of track. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Sininjor and Wameka. Democrats in the state Senate say they will try to vote next week on a gun reform bill. Supporters say their plan would ban carrying guns in government buildings, cut down on untraceable guns, and expand the existing red flag law. They say it would also give the local agencies who administer gun licenses access to some of an applicant's mental health hospitalization history. State Senator Cynthia Cream says the bill was created with input from many groups, including gun owners. We sought input from school administrators, community-based violence intervention and prevention programs, and organizations representing our health care and mental health providers. The bill also has the support of the Massachusetts Chiefs of Police Association. Classes remain canceled in Newton today as the teacher strike there continues. The teachers' union is also set to be in court today for a hearing on the work stoppage. A judge ordered the group back to work earlier this week. The union is also facing hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines for the illegal strike. The group is at odds with city leaders over school funding and a new contract. It's 8.06. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums, with over 50 galleries of art spanning the centuries. Free admission every day, open Tuesday through Sunday. HarvardArtMuseums.org. The Celtics easily took care of the Miami Heat last night, winning 143-110. to That means they stay on top of the NBA East. The Bruins beat the Ottawa Senators 3-2. to Tomorrow, the Boston women's hockey team takes on Minnesota. You might see rain this morning until about lunchtime, and then there's a chance of some drizzle. Highs will be in the low 40s. Tonight, more drizzle is possible. Otherwise, cloudy and temperatures dip to the mid-30s. Tomorrow might be your day to get outside. It'll be cloudy but dry with a high in the upper 30s. Sunday, a high near 40 with a good chance of rain in the afternoon. It's 39 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBWAR. Support for NPR comes from the Public Welfare Foundation. Committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. And the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macbound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. Just moments ago, in a much-anticipated ruling, the United Nations top court in The Hague stopped short of ordering a ceasefire in Gaza, but demanded that Israel do more to contain the death and damage its military operation has wrought there. This provisional ruling is in response to a lawsuit brought by South Africa alleging that Israel's war in Gaza amounts to genocide against the Palestinian people. A definitive ruling on that question isn't likely to come for another few years. NPR's Lauren Freyer has been following this case from her base in London, and she joins me now. Good morning, Lauren. Hi, Leila. So tell us more about this ruling. So the president of the International Court of Justice, Joan Donahue, who is an American judge, read out statements from U.N. officials about Gaza's destruction, about the plight of Palestinian children there. Um, She also read out quotes from Israeli officials about how their military operation in Gaza is not aimed at genocide, they claim. And then she read out parts of the Convention on Genocide that both Israel and South Africa, the plaintiff in this case, are signatories to. And then she said that the the court orders Israel to, quote, take all measures within its power to prevent commissions of acts in this genocide convention, and she listed them. Here she is. A, killing members of the group. B, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. C, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. And, and the, the group that she's referring to there is the Palestinian people. Mm-hmm. Donahue said judges voted 15 to 2 on this. There are 17 judges on the court. The two dissenters were the one Israeli judge and another judge on the court. And what has Israel, if they've said anything yet, uh, said about this ruling? Um, Israel's lawyers were at the court taking notes. Presumably, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and other Israeli officials have been watching this from afar. In testimony before the court two weeks ago, Israel's attorneys pushed back very hard at this genocide allegation, acknowledged that civilians in Gaza have suffered terribly, but insisted that civilians are not Israel's target in Gaza. And they say that the enemy is Hamas, which Israel accuses of using civilians as human shields, of embedding its fighters in schools 
schools and hospitals. One of Israel's attorneys two weeks ago in the court told the court that if the term genocide applies to anyone, it applies to Israel's foes, militants who have called for the destruction of Israel. Here he is. Israel is defending itself against Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and other terrorist organizations whose brutality knows no bounds. Attorneys for Israel listed in great detail efforts that Israel says it's made to warn civilians in Gaza before attacks and to get aid shipments into Gaza, although the UN and aid agencies that say have said it's not nearly enough. But today, basically, the court said it is plausible that Israel has committed acts of genocide, but that a final determination on that is still to come. Okay, the court saying it is plausible. The court also saying that Israel needs to do more to contain the death and damage its military operations has rotten Gaza. What happens now, though? I mean, is this order binding? Can it be enforced? So the president of the court, um, Joan Donahue, said, yes, this is legally binding. But in reality, it's pretty hard to enforce. Mm -hmm. I mean, Israel's prime minister has said specifically that this court will not stop him from his goal of destroying Hamas. There is precedent here. A, A 2019 case brought by the country of Gambia in West Africa sued Myanmar for alleged genocide against the Rohingya minority. The court ordered a similar emergency measure urging Myanmar to do more. And Myanmar ignored it then. That's NPR's Lauren Freyer in London. Thank you, Lauren. You're welcome. All right, to better understand the current Mideast war, we're going to focus on a key relationship, the one between Israeli leader Benjamin Netanyahu and the militant Palestinian group Hamas. Their long and bitter history dates back more than 25 years. Here's NPR's Greg Myrie. In 1996, Israel faced a critical election. The conservative candidate, Benjamin Netanyahu, was the underdog. The heavy favorite for prime minister was Shimon Peres, the dovish incumbent and the leading advocate for a peace agreement with the Palestinians. As the election approached, Hamas suicide bombers carried out several deadly attacks, killing more than 50 Israelis. Professor Nathan Brown, a Middle East expert at George Washington University, says this had a powerful impact on Israeli voters. Suddenly Netanyahu's message, which was we can't trust the peace process, started making an awful lot more sense. Those Hamas attacks boosted Netanyahu at the polls. In a very narrow victory, he was elected prime minister. So there was kind of a symbiotic relationship between them. After many twists and turns over the years, this tortured relationship is now playing out in the full-scale war in Gaza. Khaled El-Gindi is with the Middle East Institute in Washington. Obviously, there is no love lost between Netanyahu and and Hamas and, and vice versa. Yet they kind of need each other to support their hardline positions. Hamas came useful to Netanyahu as a way to ensure that a cohesive Palestinian leadership did not emerge and therefore there couldn't be a Palestinian state. In turn, Hamas has never negotiated with Israel and benefits from Netanyahu's recurring security crackdowns against Palestinians, says Nathan Brown. When the peace process looks like it's viable, Hamas is in a bind, but then when everything collapses, they pull right back and say, we told you so. In 1997, just a year after Netanyahu was first elected, he approved an attempt to kill Hamas leader Khalid Meshal, who was then in neighboring Jordan. Israeli agents poisoned Meshal, but he survived, and the plot was exposed. Netanyahu's government was forced to send the antidote for the poison to Jordan to help Meshal recover. Gaith Alomari is at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. 
that incident set the kind of tone for the relation uh, between Netanyahu and uh, Hamas, and things have been complicated ever since. Al-Omari used to be part of the Palestinian negotiating team back in the days when serious talks were going on. Hamas, he recalls, repeatedly undermined those talks. Every time we would make progress in negotiations, Hamas would blow up a bus uh, or a cafe. There's been no serious negotiations for a long time. Hamas has controlled Gaza for 17 years, and Netanyahu has been Israel's prime minister for almost all of the past 15 years. This period has followed a clear pattern. Hamas denounces Israel's tough restrictions on Gaza and periodically steps up attacks. Israel's military then hits back. They even have a term for this, says Khaled al-Gindi. They called it mowing the grass because every now and again, you would have to go in and sort of cut everything down to size. In recent years, Netanyahu made limited concessions toward Gaza. Some Palestinians were permitted to enter Israel to work. The wealthy Gulf nation of Qatar was allowed to send up to $30 million a month to Gaza. This approach was known as quiet for quiet. Gaith al-Omari says this suited Netanyahu. It allowed Gaza to function at a minimal level. At the same time, the Israeli leader could argue it was impossible to negotiate with the Palestinians as long as Hamas ruled Gaza. While he wanted to keep Hamas weak, he had no problem keeping them in control of Gaza. Hamas understood this, and until October 7th, they played the game. Yet this game, which helped Netanyahu and Hamas stay in power, was always a tense standoff, not a solution. It collapsed when Hamas unleashed its massive attack on October 7th. Speaking to NPR in November, Netanyahu said Hamas must now be destroyed. Once you eliminate Hamas, and we have to eliminate Hamas, otherwise this evil will spread. But once we defeat Hamas, we have to make sure that there's no new Hamas, no resurgence of terrorism. Khaled al-Gindi says eliminating Hamas is unrealistic. At the end of the day, Israel is not going to destroy Hamas. But what sort of Hamas is left? Uh, Will it be a Hamas that is more pragmatic and therefore inclined to moderate? Or will it be a more radicalized Hamas? Meanwhile, Netanyahu's political future is in jeopardy. Again, Gaith al-Omari. The intelligence and security and military failure of October 7th all happened under his watch. Still, he says the Israeli leader has been a remarkable survivor. One of the jokes uh, in Israel is that a cat has Netanyahu lives. It's impossible to uh, write him off. For now, Benjamin Netanyahu and Hamas are locked in their bloodiest battle yet, and neither is going down without a fight. Greg Myrie, NPR News. A scientific breakthrough is good news for a rhinoceros that's endangered. Yeah, it's the northern white rhino. There are only two left. They live in Kenya. They're alone in the world because humans have poached the species near extinction for their horns. The mother is called Nai, and her daughter is Fatu. That's Susanna Holza. She's a scientist and veterinarian at the Leibniz Institute for Zoo and Wildlife Research in Berlin. Both of them are of... Uh, reasonable age and infertile and there's no more males left and still we decided to set out and try to save the subspecies from extinction. Holza is part of a team of scientists, ethicists and keepers who've been working for a decade on developing in vitro fertilization for rhinos. And last year they did it in a closely related subspecies, the southern white rhino. We managed to generate the first rhino 
fetus by embryo transfer in a rhino ever. Tragically, the surrogate died of an infection that was not related to the experiment. But this month, scientists learned from a DNA analysis that she had been pregnant from the IVF treatment. They plan to do it again this year, this time by implanting embryos that have been preserved from the younger northern white rhino, Fatu. Hopefully to see a healthy pregnancy and confirm it and then wait 16 months until the calf is born. Now, researchers know they can't build a healthy, diverse population from two individuals, so they're also working on creating embryos with stem cells, which has worked in mice. Holza says one reason for working so hard for this species is the importance of rhinos to the health of their native savanna. If we lose it, we will lose the integrity of this ecosystem. But after this great achievement, I'm very optimistic. She point. Good morning. You've made it to the end of the week with 90.9 WBUR. We're following news of a preliminary decision by the International Court of Justice in The Hague. It's decided not to throw out South Africa's charges of genocide against Israel for its actions in Gaza. And coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, a woman who worked for wrestling giant WWE is suing its former CEO. And a warning here that the story deals with allegations of sexual assault. It's 819. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include the Lyric Stage, with trouble in mind. Alice Childress's moving backstage look at identity and stereotypes of 1950s Broadway. LyricStage.com. On last week's Wait, Wait, actor David Ayelowo told us it's a little odd when people find out the man who starred in the movie Selma is really just a British actor. It's very weird in the gym when you're just trying to get on with uh, getting buff and people scream Dr. King at you. I'm Peter Sagal. If you listen to us at the gym, we'll shout questions at you, too. Just tune into the News Quiz from NPR. Saturdays and Sundays at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Rain likely through early afternoon today, then drizzle. We'll have highs in the low 40s. Tonight it falls to the mid-30s, and there's a chance of more drizzle. Tomorrow may start with some light rain. Then it'll be mostly cloudy with a high near 40. Sunday, cloudy with a high back near 40. There's a good chance of rain. Starting in the afternoon, it might turn to snow Sunday night. It's 39 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end -end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. From Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. 
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm A. Martinez. The next stop on the presidential nominating calendar takes us to Nevada. Voters there will be the first in the West to cast a ballot for who they want to represent them as president. In fact, registered Republicans have two different options to do so. It's a new, unusual process for the state, and it's creating a lot of confusion for voters there. Lucia Starbuck with member station KUNR in Reno is here to tell us all about it. Uh, so primary and a caucus happening in Nevada. Why both? just a couple of days apart. Yes, that's right. So the primary is run by the state, and that will happen on February 6th. The main Republican left standing in that race is former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley. And then two days later, the party-run caucus will take place with former President Donald Trump on that ballot. There were some other nationally known GOP candidates running against them who were going to be on both of the ballots but have since dropped out, like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Uh, What's important to note is that Nikki Haley will not be getting any any delegates. It's up to the party on how to award delegates, and they've chosen the caucus. At this point, it's almost guaranteed all of Nevada's delegates will go to Trump. So if the caucus is where you'd go to get delegates for the party's nomination, do we know why Nikki Haley chose to run in the primary? Well, she actually made her decision based on the law passed by Nevada's legislature that the state would transition to a primary. Trump chose to follow the state party and chase the delegate count. We reached out to her campaign to find out why she made this choice, but we haven't heard back. And the Republican Party determined that candidates who filed for the primary were not allowed to participate in the caucus, so candidates could only be in one or the other. Is Nikki Haley even going to Nevada? Nikki Haley is really focused on South Carolina, where she used to be the governor. We haven't seen her in Nevada and not sure if she'll stop by before the primary. So, okay, why did Nevada's GOP then decide to choose a caucus? So I spoke to Nevada GOP leadership, and some of the reasons they gave me is the results will be immediate, whereas the primary will use mail-in ballots, which take some time to be counted and and signature cured. The caucus will also require voter ID, something that is not checked in most cases in Nevada elections. Some of the rules by the party stem from concerns about widespread voter fraud. I should note Nevada election officials have said there is no evidence of widespread voter fraud in Nevada. And how are Republican voters feeling about all these changes? Well, despite outreach by both the party and Nevada Secretary of State, voters are very, very confused, and there's a lot of misinformation. Some voters are hearing it the first time from me when I interview them that Haley won't get any delegates. I spoke to Luke Paschal, who owns a small plumbing company in Reno. He cast his primary mail-in ballot for Haley. Nevada just doesn't seem to care about being involved in the process. Pascal wonders what's even the point of having two different days of voting. Many voters in Nevada, particularly never-Trumpers, are feeling this way. That's Democracy Reporter Lucia Starbuck with member station KUNR. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Time now for StoryCorps. Today we hear from Corey Harvard, who has dedicated his life to helping LGBTQ youth in Mobile, Alabama. He grew up in a deeply religious family in the 1990s and struggled to come out to his parents. He came to StoryCorps with his mom, Lisa Harvard. We had no idea. We really didn't. So we were caught off guard, as you might say. But, Mom, the amount of stuff I was looking at online when I got the computer that was just me trying to learn about what it meant to be gay, if y'all were Snoopy parents, it would have taken no time to figure it out. I remember in that very first conversation, I was looking directly across from you and you fell into your dad's arms. I know that I was numb in a lot of ways, 
because a big part of it was feeling separated from you, and I didn't like that. Yeah, I remember feeling that distance. I think that with where all of us were, it was inevitable. And during those months and a couple of years there, you would come back, we would have more conversations. Of course, a lot of it we may not have understood, but it didn't leave us just reeling. We talked about those things as we were figuring out what this was going to look like for us. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I just go into your room, even though we've remodeled, we made sure not to touch that room. And I sit on your bed and I am really so hopeful that it was a good space because I wanted you to be a happy kid. The truth is I felt so loved as a kid, but I mean, there's a part of that journey that no one can join you on. A hard thing that I've always wanted to share with you, the beginning of my sophomore year, I was struggling the most. And it was this dark night of the soul where it's like, can I really accept this? Have I failed at life? And there was that that one night that got really hard. But I remember sitting on the windowsill and just contemplating it. Like, what would it be like for this to all be over? And this feeling that I had is you. And it's like this invisible golden lasso. And I knew that even in this worst moment of my life, that I can't fall. And the work that I do with these kids is how I took that golden lasso, and I turned it into a net. And we just keep saving people with that love that you put in me. Sometimes I look at you and I just can't fathom the kind of love that I see you give. It's a humbling experience. You came into my life and changed me in so many ways. I'm so much better now than I ever would have been without you. And I'm so grateful to be your mom. That's Corey Harvard and his mom, Lisa Harvard, in Mobile, Alabama. In 2018, Corey co-founded PRISM United, which helps LGBTQ youth and their families in Southwest Alabama. Their interview is archived at the Library of Congress. And if you or someone you know may be in crisis or considering suicide, call or text 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Dignity Memorial, helping families protect their loved ones and gain peace of mind by planning cremations and funerals in advance. Dedicated to professionalism and compassion in every detail. More at DignityMemorial.com. And from Subaru, featuring the 2024 Subaru Forester Wilderness with 9.2 inches of ground clearance and all-terrain tires for off-road capability. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up at 845 on Morning Edition. Concerns are growing as the cap on Massachusetts' family shelter system is forcing officials at the state's welcome centers to to send up to 200 people a night to sleep at Logan Airport. It's 829. Join Here and Now's Robin Young on Tuesday, February 6th at City Space for a conversation with Pulitzer Prize finalist Daniel Mason. He'll be talking about his hit novel, North Woods. Get tickets at wbwar.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston's historic Back Bay, near universities, high tech, and the city's cultural life. ElliottHotel.com.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The U.N.'s top court says it's plausible Israeli forces have committed acts that violate the genocide convention in the war with Hamas. The military operation conducted by Israel after 7 October 2023 has resulted inter alia in tens of thousands of deaths and injuries and the destruction of homes, schools, medical facilities, and other vital infrastructure, as well as displacement on a massive scale. That's Joan Donahue, president of the International Court of Justice, presenting the court's interim findings today on a lawsuit filed by South Africa. The court is ordering Israel to take steps to contain deaths and destruction in Gaza and to improve humanitarian conditions. It wants Israel to report back within a month. The Biden administration is suspending approvals of new natural gas export facilities in the U.S. The Energy Department says it wants to review whether such plants are in the public's interest to mid efforts to combat climate change. Hallie Parker with member station WWNO says the industry is pushing back. Industry groups argue this decision could hurt relationships with allies like Europe that started importing more gas from the U.S. after the Ukraine war began. The country's largest natural gas export terminal is currently under construction in Louisiana. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Massachusetts Medical Society says it's hopeful the state will work out an arrangement to preserve Stewart Healthcare's nine Massachusetts hospitals. State officials are working on a way to keep the hospitals open amid Stewart's financial difficulties. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports. Medical Society President Dr. Barbara Spivak says the state health care system is already strained and could not absorb Stewart's patients if its hospitals close. I do not believe that any of the systems in the state can cope with any more closures at this time. The state's working on plans to deal with the potential loss of Stewart hospitals that care for tens of thousands of patients and employ more than 14,000 people in eastern Massachusetts. Stewart says it looks forward to exploring potential solutions. For 90.9 WBUR. I'm Deborah Becker. A group of parents who've lost children to an overdose is urging state lawmakers to approve a bill that would allow overdose prevention centers in Massachusetts. WBUR's Martha Biebinger reports the group gathered at the State House yesterday. It's been 10 years since Massachusetts called the surge in overdose deaths a public health emergency. Five years ago, a special commission recommended opening supervised consumption or overdose prevention centers to save lives. Len Wenkus from Rentham is angry the state still doesn't have them and deaths are still rising. Come on, people. We can do better than this. Where is the outrage? Wenkus says she wonders if her son Jeff would have survived his overdose if he'd been at an overdose prevention center rather than alone. The legislation is now in committee. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. State agencies are doing away with degree requirements for most government jobs. Instead, agencies have been directed to use skills-based hiring when looking for new employees. Governor Maura Healey signed the executive order to eliminate the education requirements yesterday. She says the change will help get rid of employment barriers and fill worker shortages. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash. Cleaning cars since 1966 with 22 New England locations. Learn more about Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited at scrubadub.com. 
It's a good weekend for Boston hockey. In pros, the Boston women's hockey team skates tomorrow against Minnesota as the Bruins match up against the Flyers in Philadelphia. And for men's college hockey fans, it's about as good as it gets. Top-ranked BU and BC will take each other on twice in what's known as the Battle of Com Ave. The first game is tonight in Chestnut Hill. Highs in the low 40s today with a good chance of showers through about early afternoon. Then we may see some drizzle. Mid-30s tonight with more drizzle possible. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy and a bit cooler with a high near 40. About the same on Sunday, cloudy with a high near 40. Rain is likely Sunday afternoon and it may become some snow on Sunday night and into Monday. It's 39 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. From Workday, with AI at the core of its system, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world. And from the Doris Duke Foundation, it's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. A woman who worked for the wrestling giant WWE is suing the former chief executive, Vince McMahon, for sexual exploitation. McMahon is now the executive chairman of TKO, the parent company of the WWE. His accuser, Janelle Grant, is also suing the WWE entity and another former executive. Reporter Khadija Suftar broke this story for The Wall Street Journal, and she joins me now to discuss. Just a warning, though, that the allegations in this lawsuit are violent and graphic. Good morning, Khadija. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. So tell me who Janelle Grant is and what she says McMahon and the WWE did to her. Janelle Grant is a former employee at the wrestling firm's headquarters. Um, She signed a non-disclosure agreement in 2022 in which McMahon agreed to pay $3 million for her not to disclose the relationship or disparage him. WWE later received an anonymous tip that year about the relationship and they started a board investigation. He left the company amid that investigation, then came back soon after. Um, This lawsuit says that McMahon stopped making those payments after the initial $1 million installment Mm -hmm. and it seeks to void the NDA and um, seeks damages. This is the first time we're really getting to see what the nature of the relationship is from her point of view. It describes very graphic details of sexual abuse. Um, She says that she was trafficked to multiple executives. There's scenes and anecdotes in which she describes being locked in offices and having been sexually assaulted. Mm. Um, And it describes the course of a relationship in which she's essentially groomed and then pressured to do like, for example, introduction of sex toys and then introducing third parties into the relationship later on. And I think you did give the warning earlier that it's pretty graphic. Yeah, I mean, you're describing some pretty horrific things if they happened. I mean, what does Grant say she wants out of this lawsuit? Um, She said that she wants to ensure that no other women are victimized. Now, this isn't the first time McMahon has been accused of misconduct. He retired from the WWE temporarily in 2022 after, as you said, your paper reported that he'd paid other women who made similar allegations. How are all these cases connected? There's just a pattern of behavior, especially with the payouts. Um, When they did the board investigation, a law firm was hired and the investigation found 
$14.6 million in payouts by the CEO to women who had accused him of sexual misconduct. Um, and we revealed that in the journal earlier. And what has McMahon um, said about these accusations? He said that the lawsuit is filled with lies, obscene made-up instances that never occurred, and a vindicative distortion of the truth, and that he will vigorously defend himself. Wall Street Journal reporter Khadija Seftar. Thank you, Khadija. Thank you. We reached out to the WWE for comment and received a statement from its parent company, TKO, that said the matter predates their executive team's tenure at the company and that they take Janelle Grant's allegations very seriously and are addressing the matter internally. Mosquitoes are on the move. Global trade and climate change have helped disease-carrying species to spread, but scientists have developed tools that they believe may help them control and possibly eradicate mosquitoes that carry malaria and other diseases. From Miami, here's NPR's Greg Allen. In the age-old war of man versus mosquitoes, the bugs have been winning. At least 700,000 people die every year from mosquito-borne diseases, such as malaria, dengue, West Nile, and yellow fever. In the U.S., dengue is now a persistent problem in Florida, Texas, and other states. Last year, for the first time in decades, Florida and Texas reported locally acquired malaria cases. Maryland also had a case. But Andrea Leal, the head of mosquito control in the Florida Keys, says help is on the way. The good news is we've got these emerging technologies that are showing great promise in reducing Aedes aegypti mosquitoes. The Aedes aegypti mosquito loves to feed on people and has become a significant health threat across the southern U.S. Liao's agency became the first in the U.S. to partner with a company, Oxitec, that's testing a new means of mosquito control. Using gene editing, Oxitec has developed male mosquitoes that, when they mate, produce female offspring that don't survive to adulthood. Females are the mosquitoes that bite, spreading dengue and other diseases. Over the last three years, Oxitec released limited numbers of its bioengineered male mosquitoes in the Florida Keys. Oxitec hasn't released the results of those trials yet, but in a 2022 study in Brazil, the company showed the technology reduced populations over 90% in some areas. Oxitec CEO Gray Franzen says now the company's mosquito control technology is used widely there. Now the product is being deployed in every state in Brazil, including in the heart of the Amazon, where the Amazon Tourism Authority has selected Oxitec to deploy around tourism sites because they are, in essence, rejecting the need to deploy chemical pesticides. Along with Oxitec, many research organizations are now focused on using gene editing to combat mosquitoes. A major plus is that it can be used on any species, including those that transmit malaria. Oxitec is working on three species of malaria mosquitoes and is in talks about conducting trials in Uganda. Eric Karagata, an entomologist at the University of Florida, says there's growing evidence that gene editing technology will be an important tool in reducing the spread of dengue, malaria, and other diseases. If you use a product like that, you have the potential to drastically reduce the number of mosquitoes that are in an area and hopefully that would be accompanied by a decrease in the number of cases. At the University of California, San Diego, Omar Akbari is using gene editing to target a mosquito species that carries malaria. He calls gene editing a game changer that he believes if scaled up and maintained can wipe out the 80s Egypti mosquito from North America. I think it's going to be difficult, but I don't think it's impossible because they have been eradicated before using insecticides, and these are new technologies. 
But there's been public resistance and concerns about the possible environmental impact of releasing bioengineered mosquitoes. The three years of trials in the Keys were conducted to show federal and state regulators that the technology is environmentally safe and effective. And in recent years, Franzen says, he's seen a shift in the questions his staff is getting from the public. The question is no longer, do these technologies have a role? Are these technologies appropriate for communities? Can they develop public support? The questions we're getting now is, how quickly can we get these technologies to new communities that need it the most? Oxitec is hoping to receive approval from the EPA and make its mosquito control technology available commercially in the U.S. within the next two years. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, the Marketplace Morning Report goes to the Sundance Film Festival in Park City, Utah, to see how movie makers are selling their films to an industry that's still reeling in the wake of two major strikes. Low 40s and showers today through about early afternoon. Then we might see some drizzle. Mid-30s and cloudy tonight with a chance of more drizzle. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy and near 40. Sunday, cloudy and near 40 again. Rain is likely in the afternoon. It might become snow Sunday night and last through Monday morning. It's 40 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, one of the nation's largest banks is setting up their Massachusetts shop in downtown Boston. MNT Bank has signed a lease at the Winthrop Center. The company is expected to move in later this fall. The Girl Scouts of Central and Western Massachusetts has a new leader. The organization tells the Telegram and Gazette Teresa Lynn will step into that role. Lynn previously worked at the United Way of Central Massachusetts. She succeeds former longtime CEO Patty Halberg, who was with the group for 16 years. New England has two of the best so-called mom-and-pop ski resorts. A new report from Men's Journal finds that Mad River Glen in Vermont and Whaleback Mountain in New Hampshire are great places to beat the crowds without sacrificing the quality of skiing. Riders say the location of both resorts and their access to activities after a day of skiing also boosted their ranking. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare Advantage plans as low as $0 per month. New benefits for 2024. BlueCrossMA.com slash go. And Plymouth Rock Assurance. Auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Logan Airport has become a de facto homeless shelter, with roughly 100 to 200 people sleeping there on recent nights. They were sent there by the state's family welcome centers. Now experts are raising concerns about the family's well-being and airport security. WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel reports. It's almost 10 p.m., and on the far side of a baggage claim by the bathrooms, people line the walls. Some huddle under thin blankets, others lean against windows, their bags pile around them. 
A three-year-old full of energy jumps on her family's gray blanket. Her older brother is lying down. A baby fiddles with a rattle. Their dad, DaCosta, says they arrived in the U.S. just over a month ago, hoping to make a better life and stay with relatives in Massachusetts. They say, okay, but the landlord is complaining because we are too much, uh, 10 people on the house, so I have to go out. The family ended up at the state's Family Welcome Center in Quincy, which was set up last year to help new immigrants with basic needs like food and diapers. We're not using full names because of the family's immigration status. DaCosta says they soon learned the Massachusetts family shelter system is full, as are the overflow shelters for waitlisted families. So they joined a growing number of people sent by taxi or ride-hailing app to sleep at the airport each night and wait at the Family Welcome Center during the day. Come sleep in airports and in the morning we come again and over Every day. Every day. Uh, now it's day 10. Do you sleep okay? No, of course no. no, no. It's so cold. It's cold. I'm cold too. And we have no, no bed. And there are no showers. DaCosta says he gives his children blankets to cushion the hard floors. And he reads to them on repeat their only book, Dr. Seuss, Mr. Brown Can Moo. And is the six-year-old going to be going to school or anything? Or? No, 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 because we don't have a, a residence. Massachusetts law guarantees shelter for homeless families, and federal law guarantees an education for all school-aged children. But DaCosta's family is one of many falling through the cracks. I don't want to be rude, but I think is this is... The politicians and the government sometimes don't care. You get the feeling they don't care. Yes, yes. Frankly, what you've seen at Logan has been the situation. And this is why I said months ago that we are reaching capacity here. That's Governor Maura Healy speaking earlier this week at the State House. In November, she capped the shelter population, saying there isn't enough space or funding to keep up with record demand. The state estimates about half of shelter residents are new immigrants, and Healy is one of several governors calling for the federal government to address immigration. We need D.C. to act. We need Congress to act, to fix the border situation, to change some of the asylum processes, and to get much-needed funding to interior states who have had to shoulder the burden for a problem that is geopolitical. But Kelly Turley of the Massachusetts Coalition for the Homeless says the state still has a moral and legal obligation to help. So clearly, you know, Massachusetts is in a crisis situation. But in the meantime, it's important to acknowledge that the current response is inadequate. She worries for the families and says the crowd at Logan Airport could become a public health issue. During the winter with COVID, RSV, flu, common cold, it's concerning that people would be in such close proximity. Others see a security concern. Jeff Price wrote the textbook Practical Aviation Security and consults for airports around the country. The aviation security system is designed to protect aircraft. It's designed to protect airports. The more things that distract security professionals from those primary goals makes the system more vulnerable Price says nighttime is a particular concern since staffing is minimal. A spokesperson for Massport, which oversees Logan Airport, says she can't discuss specific safety measures. But Massport is paying for families' transportation back to the welcome centers.
Price says there's no precedent for an airport serving as a family shelter. I think there needs to be uh, longer-term planning in how this is going to be handled. But Dick Costa and his family hope the terminal at Logan won't become a long-term solution. He says all his family needs is a chance. If I have some place to stay, I can find a job and, and change everything. He says he has hope, but sleeping at Logan Airport each night is a struggle. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have reaction from Israeli officials to the International Court of Justice's preliminary decision in a genocide case against Israel for its actions in Gaza. Judges stopped short of ordering a ceasefire, but demanded that Israel try to limit deaths and damage. It's 8:50. WBUR supporters include the exhibition Auschwitz, not long ago, not far away with over 700 Holocaust artifacts, opens this March in Boston. The AuschwitzExhibition.com, an AL Prime Energy Consultant, providing wholesale and retail fuel products located in more than 60 communities in and around greater Boston. ALPrime.com. Imagine going in for a routine colonoscopy. Good news, you don't have to pay for it. At least, that's what you thought. That's what happened to Chantal Panozzo when she got a surprise bill. I thought, what is going on? Why am I getting billed for things that are supposed to be free? More on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again after 4 today on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. CIA Director William Burns is expected to meet with Israeli officials to advance ceasefire negotiations in Gaza. Closing arguments begin in a Manhattan federal courthouse in the civil defamation trial of former President Donald Trump. And the Biden administration is pausing approval of new natural gas export terminals, citing climate concerns. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Boston Children's Museum, family fun all winter, sock skating, hands-on science, art, and 22 exhibits to explore and discover. BostonChildrensMuseum.org. Rain is expected through early afternoon today, then drizzle as possible. It'll be in the low 40s, mid-30s tonight, and cloudy, mostly cloudy tomorrow and near 40. It's 40 degrees in Boston. Remember IBM, an old-timey brand like Lotus 123? Well, hardly. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Deloitte. Unlocking innovation takes more than AI or cloud. It takes outcome-focused application, too. Learn more at Deloitte.com slash U.S. slash Engineering Advantage. And by UiPath. More than 10,000 organizations use the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform to put AI to work. UiPath.com slash Marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. International business machines, IBM, is making a fortune on artificial intelligence. IBM stock has hit a 10-year high. Marketplace's Henry Epp reports. 
Hype around AI has boosted a lot of different tech companies over the last year or so, but Wall Street analysts hadn't expected IBM to rake in quite so much revenue in the last quarter of 2023. Reporting its financial results yesterday, the company that made its name developing some of the world's first computer systems last century said demand for its AI platform nearly doubled between the third and fourth quarter last year. The company expects its revenue to keep growing this year by a few percentage points, and its chief financial officer predicted AI would produce some financial inflection points next year and beyond. But IBM's revenue growth also came in a year when it cut nearly 4,000 jobs, and it plans to cut even more positions this year. I'm Henry App for Marketplace. Now, IBM's happy day was not mirrored at Tesla after posting profits that dismayed many analysts and indicating that they're not expecting big jumps in electric car production this year. Tesla's stock plummeted more than 12 percent, knocking more than $80 billion off the company's stock market value. The inflation gauge preferred by the guardians of interest rates at the Federal Reserve is just in, showing only a wisp of inflation in December, excluding volatile food and energy prices the way the Fed likes it. Personal consumption expenditures rose just two-tenths of a percent in December. Prices are up 2.6 percent in a year. After the S&P 500 hit a new all-time high yesterday, futures suggest the index will open down slightly in just over half an hour. And here's a number, $23 billion. That's the record amount of money in federal contracts secured in 2023 by organizations owned by tribal authorities in the U.S. The number's been up for eight years in a row using a calculation from Tribal Business News. Marketplace's Savannah Marr reports. Tribal firms are benefiting from larger total federal contracting budgets in recent years, but they're also earning a growing share of the contracting pie about 3% in 2023. The big part of that has been driven by tribes at the beginning of the pandemic, kind of stepping back and analyzing their revenue streams. Casey Lozar is with the Minneapolis Fed Center for Indian Country Development. He says the pandemic hobbled businesses in the gaming and hospitality sectors, a major source of revenue for many tribal governments, which realized further diversification is needed. A lot of the recent growth comes from defense contracting, says Quentin Carroll with the Native American Contractors Association. I'd say it goes all the way from, say, janitorial services at a military base to very advanced engineering contracts. And since tribal nations don't typically tax their citizens, Carroll says the revenue helps fund vital services. Whether that's health care, schooling, education, infrastructure, Contracting also creates jobs for Native workers living in their tribal communities, who, according to the Minneapolis Fed, currently face an unemployment rate twice the national average. I'm Savannah Marr for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 Generative AI. Verified, traceable answers, secure, hallucination-free, LLM agnostic, IP liability-free. Learn more at c3.ai. And by JLL, a leasing, management, investment, and technology company dedicated to creating a brighter future for the world of commercial real estate. JLL.com. See a brighter way. The Hollywood news site Deadline is reporting the first big distribution deal out of the Sundance Film Festival. Searchlight Pictures will pay $10 billion for a Brothers Go Back to Poland road trip film with Kieran Culkin. We're going into the festival's final weekend here. Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes has more. Josh Braun has nine documentaries premiering at Sundance this year. He runs Submarine, a sales production and distribution company. 
He says last year the appetite for docks at the festival was kind of muted. But this year? The marketplace is starting to get a pulse. You just don't know till you get there, screen the films, and see the reaction. Braun says he tries to be strategic about approaching buyers. That includes streaming companies, networks, and other movie distributors. He looks at whether outlets have holes in their schedules. He also keeps an eye on which companies are announcing giant increases in subscribers or are having layoffs and might not have big budgets. Every company goes through whatever they're going through, and we just sort of go for where the money is. Also, he tries to have a realistic talk with each of his filmmakers about whether their movie could bring people into theaters or if it might find its audience on the small screen instead. Sundance Institute CEO Joanna Vicente says sales at the festival so far are on pace with last year, including some big deals. There's still an appetite for that, and, and some people are coming in with those big numbers. She points to Netflix's purchase of the horror movie, It's What's Inside, for a reported $17 million. Netflix confirmed the purchase, but wouldn't talk about what it paid. And Vicente says buyers are putting a lot of thought into how much they spend. There's also a little bit of what are the realistic projections of how will the film perform. And these days, a lot of the people who like watching independent films like watching them at home in their PJs. The theatrical side of things is not is not there like it was before. Peter DeBruge is chief film critic for Variety. And by before, he means prior to the pandemic. He says a lot of indie filmmakers are still making their movies with the idea that they'll be seen at the movies. And that's not necessarily the market that exists anymore at Sundance. Still, independent films are having a moment, says Comscore media analyst Paul Dergarabedian. They've never been more important than ever. Dergarabedian says audience are hungry for films that don't feature superheroes or have a Roman numeral at the end of their titles. And he says lots of these independent filmmakers are looking to have their movies submitted for awards. Currency of quality in that case is more important than dollars and cents. He points out a lot of these films will have a second life once they reach the small screen. Though, of course, he says the best possible outcome is to be critically acclaimed, popular, and profitable. I'm Stephanie Hughes for Marketplace. Our executive producer is Kelly Silvera, digital producer Dylan Mietinen, engineers Jessen Dooler and John Brewington. I'm David Brancaccio, Marketplace Morning Report. We're from APM, American Public Media. Rain is likely through mid-afternoon today. It'll be in the low 40s. Temperatures fall to the mid-30s tonight and skies will be overcast. Tomorrow, some light rain is possible in the morning. Then it'll be mostly cloudy and near 40. Cloudy and near 40 on Sunday with showers likely after about 3 p.m. There's a good chance of a little snow Sunday night through Monday morning. It's 40 degrees in Boston and the BBC News Hour is coming up next. I'm executive editor for news, Dan Mozzie, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.